Hello, it's Emily Taylor and welcome back to the Don't Look Down Mental Health and Wellbeing Podcast, where I'm hoping by sharing the stories and chatting to some very inspirational people, it is helping you see the light at the end of the tunnel in one way or another. Today, we're going to be hearing from Sam Dalloway and she's going to be sharing with us her story suffering the tragic loss of her firstborn son, Rob, something that none of us ever want to experience. Sam is brave and she's also bold. She's a bit of a rebel heart, which I love. She's mother to six and she's got eight grandchildren, I believe, and she lives her life for them. She's going to be sort of talking sort of three, four years on about how time might not heal, but it does allow the sharp pain to subside on occasions. We're also going to be talking to both Sam and her husband, Clem Dalloway, about the importance of music, something that's being talked about by all the stars in the press at the moment this week. With obviously the lockdown situation, we don't want music to suffer, basically, and it not be around. Music, to me, is my life. It's a lot of other people's lives. We're all human and we crave that escapism, which I believe music creates. It's so important that we have it. Sam and Clem are big musicians and are well-known in Redditch and surrounding areas. They've been hosting lockdown live music sessions and have had lots of other sort of um, musicians in Redditch joining them which has been a breath of fresh air to see so they're going to be talking about that we are going to be talking exclusively to Clem Dalloway at the end of this interview and he's going to be chatting to me about how music teachings has impacted on the well-being of people struggling with mental health issues of all ages, both children and adults. And they're also going to be playing a song at the end of this show, which signifies overcoming things in life, which I feel is very poignant at the moment. So it's a very special show indeed. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. It's a pleasure to have you on. Obviously, we know each other through family and I'm really pleased that you agreed to come on because although we're going to be talking about some tragic things and some things that um, no one wants to happen to them, um, I also find you a very interesting person. And as I said earlier, I like your ethos on life, your way of thinking, being a bit of a rebel myself when I was younger. So we'll be talking about things like that. But obviously the main reason for you coming on is to talk about obviously Rob mm-hmm. and 
coping with the loss of a child, everything that brings. Obviously, you're a mum of six children mm -hmm. and grandchildren to seven, nearly eight. Yes. So um, you're well thought of. You've obviously got a very important role. And I think you wanted to just reach out to other people that have been in a similar situation yes, to yourself. And sort of it's three years on, so hopefully you can kind of shed some um, light on some coping mechanisms and where you are now. But also talking about your life, from obviously being a young child, having a bit of a turbulent upbringing, few rebellious years, but also talking about how you found escapism through music and how it's such a big part of your everyday life. And then obviously at the end, we're gonna be talking to your husband, Clem, yep. about music and how it's helped people with um, mental health issues and how it's brought people out of their shell and talk about the benefits of that. So, thanks for coming on. Let's start at, at the beginning and about the main kind of topic. Um, you've had obviously some very unfortunate incidents happen that no mother ever wants to experience. But before we sort of go on about that, I wanted to start talking about your childhood, if I can, and specifically about how your, when your parents split up and I think you was eight years of age. I was, yeah. Can you elaborate on that and how it affected you? Oh, it devastated me. Absolutely devastated me. I, I hated the fact that my mum had taken me away from my dad. Mm. I, was, I was always a daddy's girl. Still am, really. Um, and I, I, absolutely, I was absolutely devastated. I hated mum for years and years and years. And my stepdad, he was the devil as far as I was concerned. You know, he, nobody was going to take my dad's place. But it was hard to deal with and I became, I don't know, quite rebellious. I ran away from home when I was nine with my little suitcase and my cat. <laughs> and the cat? Oh yeah, but the cat sort of fought away from me about three minutes up the road. <laughs> yes. But you went back. Well, I had no choice because my stepdad followed me all the way in the car and then finally he had enough of following me, so told me to get in the car. I did because I was cold and wet and wanted to go home. Yeah. And, and, it, and it kind of, was did that happen a lot? You sort of wanting to leave and... All the time. Did you, did you get used to your stepfather? Did, what kind of relationship did you have with him? To be honest, I couldn't wait to leave home. Not just because of my stepdad, because I didn't get on with my mum either. And once I'd left home, my relationship with my stepdad became much, much better. Mm. And I loved him. To, you know, I really did love him. He was a, he was a great dad. Mm. He did everything he could for us, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a father should. You know, yeah. I had two younger sisters. Yeah. I only grew up with the one, Georgie. She's 10 years younger than me. I didn't ever live with Kimberly because mm. I'd already left home by then. But um, yeah, he was a great dad. He, we always had holidays every year. We had day trips. Everything we wanted, we always had. Mm. So yeah, he was. I did love him as a dad. He was great. And when I when I was a teenager, I used to tell everybody I've got two dads. Yes. Yeah. That, and that's a nice thing, but it's it's hard to accept to start off with, isn't it? And, and very young. Yeah, definitely. So I'm glad that it you know that it, it did. Um, you know, kind of blossom that relationship and, it, and you did get on with him in the oh, end. Oh, he was a great guy, he was ever so funny. 
<laughs> definitely, definitely. So, um, obviously, you said you, you hated your mum at times and you didn't get on with her. What was your relationship like with your mother and your other siblings growing up? Because you're one of four. I am one of four, yeah. In, from my mum, yeah. Yeah. Um, when I was ten, my mum had my sister George. And she didn't cope very well, she had postnatal depression and mm. I did a lot of looking after the baby and we'd had we had an argument when I was about thirteen, maybe fourteen. And basically she told me she wished she'd never had me and all this sort of stuff, so that just pushed me away even further because mm. Georgie was the apple of everybody's eye. Because mm. she was John's first, you know. So that was it. I was sort of pushed out and Mum loved Peter so much anyway, my brother. Yeah. Um, I just... And that's your full brother, yeah. Yeah, I just did everything I could to annoy them, basically. So you rebelled? Oh, totally. Yeah. When that was a bloke on a motorbike and, you know, the whole lot. Everything you're not supposed to do, I did. Yes, you do. And you live and you learn. You so it's quite a turbulent few sort of teenage years where you rebelled and obviously... Oh, yeah. um, what age was you when you left home? 17. So you were 17. And what were the circumstances behind that? I met my first husband when I was 16. And I was just doing my um, O-levels at the time. Mm. Uh, I managed to finish those, get my grades. Brilliant. And then he persuaded me to leave home um, just before my... I was going to be 18 in the September. Mm. And I left home in the March. Mm of that year um, and I just up and left on it was marathon um, London Marathon Day yeah oh you remember it that vividly yeah mum was pregnant with Kimberly and uh, she just sat there in the chair stone faced so if you walk out that door don't you ever think you could come back and so that was it that was it I went did you ever go back yeah <laughs> 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 yeah. Twice. <laughs> but did you stay for long periods and then, no, you, you was always once, that was it. Um, so was the, obviously it was a turbulent, would you say it was a love-hate relationship between you and your mum? Very much so. Was it she always like that? Me, I loved to hate her. <laughs> so it was mutual? It was, yeah. It was. So um, that obviously, you know, can, continued until the day that unfortunately she she passed it did it did you then got married for the first time and you had three children i did yeah can we talk about what your life was like for you at that time so you was obviously a young mother yeah i mean when i married my first husband in 1983 so how old would you have been? I was just 18. 18 when you first got married, okay. We got married on the 29th of October 1983. And he'd already got a daughter when she was three. Mm. So I instantly had a family. Mm. But I wanted my own children and he kept kicking against it saying, no, I don't want children. But he was quite abusive and I, I thought maybe if we have a child it'll change things you know, yeah young and naive very young and naive yeah so eventually he gave in and we had robert uh, on the 10th of june 1988 and then we went we didn't plan on having any more 
um, fell pregnant with Katie. She was born in 1990 and I had Stephanie in 1992. But then unfortunately I fell pregnant again, um, but this time he put his foot down and made me terminate. He made you do that today. So what was your marriage like to your first husband? Hell. Really that bad? Yeah. So do you feel like you was a single mother a lot of the time? Or was he I a was. good father? Or was it just abusive to you? He wasn't a father. He was just there. Mm. You know, he, he never took any active role in bringing up the children at all. He did, you know, it, down to the fact that Robert was at school and I hadn't long had Stephanie. And I used to have to get all three of them ready and walk up to the school to take Robert to school and Vicky to school as well, mm. you know, the stepdaughter. Mm. And he would just stay in bed and, and he'd go out in his garage and work on his motorbikes, shout me when he wanted a cup of tea and all that sort of stuff. With regards to music, because obviously that's been a constant in your oh, life. Totally. And was that, I know obviously Clem um, is a big part of music as well in your life, which we'll move on to later, but was music a love of yours before you met Clem? Was oh, that yeah. something, Was would you say that was your escapism through a lot that you went through? It was, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I performed with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra when I was young um, in the choir. And then I played violin um, at the Birmingham Town Hall. Wow, and I then, didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> That was when I was very young. Before You're we... full of surprises. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I joined a choir when we came to Redditch and I, I played violin at school, guitar. And I've, I've always played guitar and sang. And it... Because you rang the bells as well. With I your, still do with, that. Yeah, with, and that was something that you did and you maintained and continued yeah. with your with your real yeah, father. Really, yeah. Yes. Okay. So, sadly, your first marriage didn't work out whether that's sadly or whether it, it was a blessing, I'm guessing it's the, the latter. Um, and then you went on to meet your rock and best friend, Clem, and you went on to have a further three children. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think makes your relationship work so well and how long have you been married so far? We've been married 21 years now. Wow. We've been together 24. Um, I think what makes our relationship is Nobody's the boss. We just work together on everything. And we enjoy each other's company no matter what we're doing. Mm. It, you know, we could be decorating the house or doing the garden or, you know, whatever, just going shopping. And we, we like to do it together. And mm. Sometimes I feel like I rely on him too much. Um, and I do feel like I put a lot of pressure on him, but I think just the fact that we're, we're understanding of each other, it, it works so well. You know, I can tell him anything and mm -hmm. he can tell me anything and he won't judge me and I won't judge him unless it's really, really bad, obviously. But. Yeah. Well, the reason I wanted to ask that is because so many marriages do fail mm -hmm. and people give up, I feel, sometimes quite easily. Um, and I like both of your lifestyles, so I'm quite intrigued as to sort of know, you know, how it does work and, and why it works. And I think, you know, with what you're saying with nobody's the boss and there's not that competition, I think that is a 
a big part to making any relationship work. It, it is even uh, in, in, a, in a working relationship. Of course it is, yeah. It's having that mutual respect, isn't it? And it is. knowing the boundaries and being there for each other, I think. Yeah. And obviously you've been through so much. And of course you have the connection through a love of music. Mm -hmm. What sparked that? Did you both know instantly that you'd got this in common? No, uh, well, yes, but no, if you, if you understand what I mean. We instantly found out that we liked the same sort of music, we had the same sort of musical tastes. Mm. Um, but I didn't know he played guitar at the time, and he didn't know I played guitar. It just happened, really. Um, I went round to his house one day, and he was stood there practising his guitar, and I thought, oh, he's pretty good at that, you know. He is good. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, he was only 20 then. God, that sounds awful, doesn't it? But yeah, um, then we started, when we had the kids and he started teaching, we started playing together and mm. he'd play a song and I'd just sing it and he'd say, oh, why don't we go out and do it? I'm, like, I'm not going out there and singing. No, no, I've got the confidence. I can remember seeing you play and sing for the first time at the Woodland Cottage. Mm. Um, because my dad used to go up and play with the Notorious Brothers. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they'd have like people coming up. And I remember thinking, wow, I didn't know that you could <laughs> sing like that. Um, and then obviously all, it's just, obviously people in the music industry in Redditch and sort of another, um, and other places both know you quite well for um, playing everywhere. Yeah, they do. I don't know whether that's good or bad sometimes. No, I think it's I think it's I think it's wonderful. I mean, I, I absolutely love singing. I've never sang in public, but it's something that I've always wanted to do. But I've never pursued it because it's a big thing, isn't it? It is. Um, but you're quite a confident person, so you'd probably be okay. I, mean. I am. But if if you said to me, "Oh, I'd like you to come and sing at the Black Tap one night," I would be absolutely shitting it. I really would. I'd love it. But I would be so, so nervous. But you wouldn't be normal if you weren't, because every, every performer, when they go on stage, it, there's something wrong if you don't get the jitters before you go on stage. So do you still get like oh, that? I do. He doesn't. He's, he just... Oh, here we go again. Play, play, play. But I do. But how do you feel afterwards? Elated. That's it. Euphoric, even, sometimes. It's, yeah. It's, and that's what I love yeah. about music. And I just think that if you're living that every day, I don't think there's a day go by that I don't listen to some form of music. Mm -hmm. um, so to be able to play and be able to sing and do it as well as you do, it must be amazing afterwards. Do you think that the way that you, you've lived your life through music, have you passed that on to your children? Definitely. Do they play? Um, Connor is... Um... Predominantly, he's a drummer, um, but he plays guitar and sings, and now he plays bass in a, a metal band, which is quite heavy. Mm -hmm. But he's very good, he's got good stage presence, he, and he, he can sing really well. Morgan, oh, he writes songs as well. Oh, brilliant. He's done, he's done quite a few of his own songs. Morgan sings, she's got an absolutely gorgeous little voice on her. Has she? And then William, uh, William is a great eight pianist, so... Wow. Yeah. Very musical then. Yeah. This is something I'm trying to encourage my daughter to do. I've just enrolled her in guitar lessons at school. Mm. She has a little guitar. She hasn't played it yet. <laughs> I'm going to see how she gets on at school and then I'm going to put her your way, Clem. Um, <laughs> so, um, 
when we've had conversations before, um, and this is the bit that I quite like about your personality, is the fact that you don't always abide by society's rules for living. What does this mean for you both? Well, for me, I don't want to be a sheep. I, I, I've never wanted to be a sheep, and I've always had the philosophy that if you don't like what I've got to say, you haven't got to listen. The door's over there, and I haven't got to talk to you, so, you know. I prefer to live... Obviously, you've got to abide by the law and, and stuff like that, but I'm not a fashion victim. I've never have been. Don't follow trends. I'm not one of these women that says, oh, we've got to go shopping or let's go for a spa day. or mm. It's just not me. I like to do my thing when I want to do it and balls to everyone else, you know. Good way to be. Good way to be. Definitely like the not being a sheep. It comes the same. He doesn't, he doesn't like being a sheep. He, he'd rather... Well, if you said to him, I want to go right, he'd come on. I'm going left, stuff you mm. Because I feel like your children also are the same. They They've got their own individuality. They've mm. got their own style. And I like that. And it's so difficult in today's society to try and teach your children. It's actually okay to be different. You know, don't just follow the trends. The thing is, you, you have to... I know it sounds really silly, and, and probably people will think it's bad parenting in some ways, but... We've always let our children grow to be themselves. Mm. We've not tried to mould them into what society expects them to be. Yeah. Because then you're just oppressed and suppressed. Exactly. You know, you, you, can't, you can't make a flower blossom unless you give it the room to blossom. I love that. That's, that's so. I love the way that you've described that because it's perfect, isn't it? I suppose it is. Yeah. It, it, well, it is, and it's true. Um, you know, I can remember being a teenager, and I grew up with a lot of music, and my um, my mum and brother had the same interests, and they were into heavy metal. Um, we were brought up on Led Zeppelin, um, Morrissey, Pink Floyd, all, all the greats. And at the time, I remember thinking, God. What is this? Especially when my mum started playing Morrissey. But now I absolutely love it. But it was because all my friends were into Take That and, you know, I can remember doing the dance routines and thinking, this just is not me. Yeah, no I loved Madonna. I remember watching the Vogue video of Madonna. Oh, that was good though. I mean, you and I absolutely loved it. And Michael Jackson, instantly. You can't love either of them, can you? I mean, no. No, but I quickly learnt that, you know, and I think it was probably about, you know, by the time I got to the second year, third year of high school, that was when I was comfortable enough then to think, actually, no, I want to go my own way. But it's a shame people can't do that beforehand. But if you look at Madonna, just as an example, Madonna started out very commercialised, very, very, very commercialised. She was told what she could do and, what, you know, how to do it. Mm. It wasn't until she'd amassed a certain amount of money and got rid of certain management elements that she actually branched out to be the Madonna she is now. Mm. You know, because she can actually be herself now and do what she and wants And reinvent to herself however she likes and she's wonderful, however isn't she? she wants to, yeah. Mm, definitely. Um, yes, so I quite like the rules for living in the world of, of Sam Dalloway. Um, <laughs> Um, some of your 
own children have sort of struggled with a few mental health issues. Yes. What's that been like as a mother and how has that impacted on your relationships with them? It's very difficult as a mother to watch your child struggling. Mm. Yeah. Um, be it to communicate with the outside world or to communicate with the world in your own home. Um, with Connor and William, they both um, have Asperger's, or they both are Asperger's, I must rephrase that. Sure. Um, Morgan has more complex um, difficulties, hers is mostly depression. Mm. Um, but watching an autistic child have a meltdown is because they can't communicate what they want to tell you, how they want to tell you it. Mm. And as a mother, it's, it's really, really hard to watch them struggle like that. And, and the worst part for me is, if somebody upsets them, the lioness in me emerges and I oh, yeah. go into kill mode. Mm. And I won't let anybody hurt my children. No. For anything. And I think that has made all of my children really close to me. You know, Robert was still very much a mommy's boy. Katie can't stand the fact that she lives in Oakenshaw and I live on Abbeydale. Mm. She hates it because she can't get to me. She doesn't drive. She's got three children and she's pregnant. You know, Steph hasn't moved very far away. She only lives just a couple of places down. And the other three are 22, 20 and 18 and still at home, you know, so. Well, that's it. You've got, a, you know, an immensely close relationship and that and that's means so much, you know. I'm the same with, with my parents. My mum's my best friend, um, you know, and we will go to bands together and, you know, I think the last one was Black Sabbath. And oh, awesome. Yeah, the last concert, it was amazing. Um, you know, and we're the same. Mm. You know, we've got that close relationship and always will do, and I hope my children do with me. So, um, do you found? Did you find that you were able to um, get them the right um, sort of therapies and medications and help? In all honesty, no. It was very difficult. Mm. Um, without throwing stones at anybody, the, the the mental health services in Worcestershire are absolutely shocking. Um, I struggled and struggled and struggled to get help for Robert from the age of seven mm -hmm. till it, he hung himself when he was 17. That's when they finally did, diagnosed him with bipolar disorder and ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, and Connor still hasn't been formally diagnosed and neither has William, so... So obviously Robert survived, obviously, he his suicide attempt, very yes. luckily, and that's when you got the help. And you often hear, and I've heard it so many times, that it, it takes a suicide yeah. attempt to actually get the help, which is very, very sad. It is, it's wrong. Do you, do you feel that from, from when he was a lot younger and your children were a lot younger to now, do you feel like there are, it is being recognised more? Well, I haven't seen much evidence of that yet. Mm. To be, you know, brutally honest, I haven't seen... But what they keep doing is they keep changing the names of the, um, the teams that are helping people. So they just, you know, the new one is now the, the crisis team. The crisis team, yes. Yeah, and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and that's stretched. 
beyond belief. Well, of course it isn't. And that isn't their fault. No, it's not. You know, I mean, you, you've got the, um, the on-call sites that are supposed to come to the hospital for suicide attempts and stuff like that. They've changed that now. They have um, somebody that's based at Hillcrest, which is great. Um, if you're taken to the Alex, but if you're taken somewhere else, you're stuffed, basically. You're just mm. away. Exactly. And this is it. I feel that mental health as a whole topic is actually being talked about more. I feel like the taboo subject is subsiding a little bit and people are starting to think, actually, it's okay to talk. I'm, and the, the shame's being lost behind it, but the services still aren't there. That's right. Hence why I'm doing this podcast and, you know trying to raise more awareness and getting people to talk and people listening to the conversations yeah. and the different subjects of different people's issues so that they've got something to relate to. Part of the problem for me with mental difficulty, mental health issues is you don't, you feel like you're boring people, or not boring people, you feel like people tend to switch off because they hear you talk about it so much. Yeah. Almost like you're a burden. Yes. So then you just go so in you, within yourself, yeah. don't you? You shut yourself yeah. off then. Which is what I'm trying to avoid mm. because it's a big thing and we don't want to get to the point where people, you know, have suicide attempts to get noticed, to get the help they need. Um, so what advice would you give to a parent if their child is suffering from depression? What advice would you give to them to get them help? From... If you think your child is suffering from depression of any sort, mm. you, you, they need to really learn how to read the signs. A lot of the problem with teenagers today is that they haven't got a stable home life. Not saying that people are bad parents or anything like that. No. People are, have been put in the unfortunate position of having to work so many hours between the two parents to either pay your mortgage or pay your rent and make sure your bills are paid, make sure you, you, your ch children have food. Excuse me. Um, so they don't spend enough quality time with their children. And, you know, they end up in childminders. So the childminder does the, 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 the bringing up of the small child. Mm. And then the school does the bringing up of the, the, the medium-sized child. And then high school comes along and they're starting to feel their feet, they're starting to be more independent, but they've got no one to bounce off at home mm. because they're just... The old term used to be latchkey kids. Yeah. You know, and because the parents were out or, you know, whatever. This is where the family as a whole has broken down, the family structure has broken down. If you look back in Victorian times and, and even into the war years and later than the war years, you still lived at home with your parents when you married your first, you know, when you first married. And even when you had your first child. And what would happen is if you had to go out to work, the grandparents had the children and they had a massive nuclear family. Yeah, a networking, just, a yeah, close family. Not just yeah. mum and dad and childminder and teacher, you had nanny and granddad to go to. Aunts and uncles. Yes. Yeah. All, all cousins, all... I grew up with my cousins. Yeah, grew up with my cousins. Best years of my life. And that's what we've lost in today's society. We've become so insular. We're in our own little pods. 
so yeah, true because it's it's society's precious isn't it and it is. it's like I try and make a big effort I know it's only a small thing to eat dinner at the table together yeah. as a family you can so easily get into the habit of not and I don't want to do that you know I think I think that's a big thing you know um, so I wouldn't call that a small thing I would call that a massive step towards keeping your family as a family mm -hmm. because you can talk across the dinner table. Yeah, and, and you know, even if it is that you're all working work, full time, yeah. if you make that, you know, whether it be a little bit later or whatever, mm. that you still have the meal times together. Yeah. I think it's important yeah. um, to try and keep something traditional. I think I think you're spot on with that. Yeah, we always have a, a, a Sunday roast every week, and you know, we, we all try to sit together and eat it but it doesn't always quite work like that it doesn't but at least the effort's there and you try it well yeah they all get served at the same time whether we all sit and eat at the same time is a different matter but it's different when they become adults but from yeah. being from being little you know i think i think it's important we always it we always had dinners together and stuff like that so it's just it's just something that can help um, and, and again, reading the signs, mm. you know, if you spend more quality time together, you can you can see what's going on, because it's with the it's 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 the danger of social media as well now. Yeah, you, you need uh, any change you notice in your child, just talk to them, talk to them. That's the first thing. Talk to them, mm. you know, and not just talk at them, talk to them, and then be prepared to listen to what they've got to say when they say it back. Oh, that's it, isn't it? Because, you know, you do become into this mom mode or dad mode of I know better, but actually yeah. they might, if you don't listen, they might say something that you miss mm. because you think, you know, you know better or you know, but you don't always. So yeah. listening is a big, big thing. And it's, it's sometimes the way they say things. Mm. It's like, you know, are you okay? Like, yeah, I'm fine. And you think... No, you're not. Okay, or, or then it would be... Um, Another question, anything really, would be, um, have you done so-and-so? Uh, no. <laughs> you know, that's an out-and-out -out lie. <laughs> that's why I'm laughing. Everybody, know, everybody knows that's an out-and-out -out lie. But, uh, no. But the, chi the child that, that is normally like that would say, you know, would, would answer something in a different way mm. if there was something wrong with it. You know, it, it, you just need to know your child. That's the, the only thing I can say. No, no I think I think you, I think that's a, that's a very good point. So um, I'd like to now, if you feel comfortable, yeah. um, to talk about Rob yeah, and your first son. Um, and obviously, he, you know, we've, we've talked about the fact he had um, ADHD and, and bipolar, and that must have been very challenging for you both. Yeah. Do Do you feel obviously his symptoms were under control? No before in the later part of his life and he was found some happiness when he yeah when he, i mean it wasn't till he was like 22 and he met uh his his girlfriend yeah and he started to become um a little bit more aware of the fact that he couldn't throw his weight around with somebody outside of the house mm. um he had to sort of back down a little bit she sort of tamed him if you like yeah don't get me wrong it wasn't one of those relationships where it was all roses and you know puppies so and kittens and all that sort of stuff it was pretty tumultuous they she could be as as fiery as he could right 
So they were a pretty good match for each other, mm. which I was really grateful for at the time, you know, because she sort of, like I said, she grounded him a bit. So yeah, he, he, and she sort of focused him on the fact that he wasn't getting any younger and he needed to get off his ass and go and get himself a decent job, you know, <laughs> and start paying his way in, in, you know, in life. And, which I've been telling him for years, but obviously because I'm mum, it doesn't make any difference. So somebody else came along and said it in a different way. He and he listened. Yeah. No, he did. He, so he got himself a job and tried. started to, to try and sort his life out. And they had Emily. Um, Brilliant name. Yeah, the best. <laughs> I always <laughs> warn people. I always say... When they, oh, what are you, what are you going to call your little girl? And they say Emily, and I'm always like, you need to think about that. <laughs> they can be a handful. <laughs> Every Emily is. Oh no. I was a nightmare as a child. I still am. But I try and warn people. <laughs> They're great though. She's such a little cutie, but she's so headstrong. Robert. <laughs> and then Jacob came along, and he's he's four now. And he, then he got his job at S.E. Davis and he was proper happy. He was working on, the, on all the heavy plant machinery. Yeah, and I know it. Brilliant fan. Loved it, loved it yeah. so much. Um, and he So things it. were... Yeah. He'd finally got a little bit of control. He was settled. Yeah. Would you say he was more content? Oh, very much And so. he'd got two children. Yeah, when he got it, he'd been on his little motorbike, his 125, for two years. Yeah. And that was his main transport because... You know, sometimes it gets a bit sickening when you get a phone call, Mum, can you take me to blah blah yeah. blah? Mum, can you take me? You know, but he finally managed to save up, got his bike, put it on the road, yeah. did his, you know, yeah. CBT and everything, and taxed it himself, insured it himself, you know, the lot. Good. And he worked really hard, and then he bought his bigger bike, did his mod two, and passed his test on the Friday, got the bike MOT'd on the Monday. And said, Mum, I've got to go and show the lads, I really have to go. So I agreed to bait it for him. And off he went, on his big bike. So, obviously on the 25th of April 2016, you had the knock at the door mm -hmm. while she was babysitting for, for Rob um, and his girlfriend's children, your grandchildren. Can you talk me through that night, Sam? Yeah, it was... Um as I said, he was very insistent about me babysitting because he wanted to go out on this bike. And um, where he lives, there's, it's like a long driveway and you can't go any further than that. It, it, it's only one car wide. So I phoned him and I said, where can I park? Because I'm not parking at the bottom of that blooming hill I'm walking all the way up because it kills me. Mm. And uh, he texted me back. He said, park out the front ma and then a couple of kisses. So I sent it back, okay, will do. So I got there round about 20 past, 25 past seven. And he was outside with the bike, tinkering about with it, you know, and he was ticking, ticking over on the drive. I said, oh, you've done a really good job of that, Robbie. It looks really great. And he said, oh, thanks. And we went into the house. Kids were already in bed. And uh, sat down and he put his legs in his leathers and he stood up, he put his arms in, as he's putting his arms in, he said, right then, just step into my body bag, <laughs> which is what a lot of bikers say when mm. they put their levers on. It's right, quite, okay. quite common thing for us to say. Um, and off he went. 
He left at 20 to 8 and Leanne went off and up to her mum's. And he said, I'll be back about 24, about half past nine, he said, because I've got to go to work in the morning, he said, and the roads aren't that brilliant anyway, he said, I've got new tyres on, he said, so I don't want to go too, yeah. too far. I said, okay then. Well, I was just sat there doing minuting and watching um, a film. And I happened to look at the, my watch and I thought, it's bloody five to ten, where is he? And I was thinking in my head, little sod, he knows I've got to go to work tomorrow and he's got to go to work tomorrow as well. And the door knocked. And uh, I, um, I, I knew instantly before I even opened the door that it wasn't going to be Rob or Leanne behind the door. And I knew it wouldn't be um, a salesperson or anything like that at that time of the night. So instantly the, the, the fear was there. Mm, that instinct. Yeah. That, yeah. So I opened the As a door. mother. Yeah, it is. It is an instinct that hits you yeah. straight away. I opened the door and there were two policemen. And the first thing that's before they spoke, I said, just, just tell me he's alive. And then one policeman said, are you Robert's mum? I said, yes. Can you please just tell me where he is? I need to get to him. And he said, I'm going to ask you again. Are you Sam? Are you Robert's mum? I said, yes. He said, I need to come in. I said, okay, and I, he came in and, and I said, please, will you just tell me that he's alive and where he is, because I need to get to him. And he said, would you like to sit down? I said, I'm quite happy standing. And that's when he said, um, unfortunately, Robert's been killed. That was it. My whole world just fell apart That in that instant, that absolute instant. And I found out that he actually died at around about half past eight. Mm. So he'd left me at 20 to 8, and he, he was dead by half a eight. And by the time they came and told me, it was 5 to 10. Mm. And he, he was still on the road then. He was still on the side of the road at 5 to 10. So he'd had a collision? Yeah, with... what had happened was he was going to um, going through Wooden Wherry on the way to Stratford. And they they literally, I mean, it's, it's a 30-mile-an-hour limit through Wooden Wherry, and... There are speed cameras along there, so you have to adhere to the speed limit there. And as you come out of Wooten Warren, you go up a hill. And just when you get to the top of the hill is when it changes to 50 miles an hour, just past the navigation book. So obviously there were three or four bikes in front of him. And he's got into, we know he was in third gear because that's what gear it was in when we picked up the bike. Yeah. So he'd obviously got into third gear and it, it, what, he couldn't have been going that fast because you can't in third gear. Um, and as he was rounding the bend, um, a car came round the bend on his side of the road. He'd overtaken a car and a Johnson's coach and hit Robert head on. Oh, gosh. Um, his friend Ben was following behind him on his little 125. And he said he came up the, up the hill and just round the corner. He said, and I could see all this debris in the road. And I thought, blimey, what's that? He said, I noticed parts of Robert's bike were in the road. He said, and then I noticed Robert's arm was in the road. Oh, Sam. And then he, he'd lost the bottom half of his leg as well. And then, from well, from then on, somebody phoned um, his dad and said, Robert's had an accident. He's all right, he's just broken his leg. Okay, so anyway, I, I'm sat there with the police and they're telling me everything. And then they just left. They just left me there on my own with the two kids.
I've phoned Clem and I phoned my ex-husband then and I said, look, Robert's had an accident. He said, oh no, yeah, he said, Tim's phoned me, he's alright, he's broken his leg. I said, Carrie, he's dead. He said, no, he's not, Tim's just phoned me, he's broken his leg. I said, he's dead. And then everything just, from then on, is pre pretty much a blur. Yeah, I there. can imagine. Well, I can't imagine, actually, um, the pain. When I'm going home, I remember her mum coming and saying, I can't let you drive home. I said, I'm fine, I just want to go home. Mm. So I went home and um, my friend came around with alcohol. I got very drunk very quickly. Um, but then somebody for some reason called a doctor and a doctor came out to me. I was given some tranquilizers, which made yeah. me sleep. Yeah. But then we had to go and identify his body the next day uh, over in Warwick. That was that was really hard because he. I actually said to the policeman, I said, "Look, I can't look at him if his face is damaged." No. Yeah. You know, okay, I just can't. And uh, he said, "I haven't seen him, so I don't know." He said, "But I'll go and have a look." Yeah. And then um, he said. Um, his face is perfect, he said, but um, they couldn't close his eyes and they couldn't close his mouth. But I will tell you that he lost the bottom half of his right leg and his right arm. So we went in to see him and he's, he was lay there and he, he just looked like he was asleep with his eyes half open and his mouth open, because that's how he used to sleep. Mm. So he just looked like Rob, asleep. Mm. But he was just so cold and hard. And I can't even begin to sort of put into words how you found the strength to then cope and go through everything that you did and you know what what made things doubly worse is just months later your mum passed away she did um I mean how did you find the strength to deal with a second loss after having gone through such a traumatic experience of losing your, your firstborn son I mean anybody losing anybody is hard but anybody losing a child is unbearable. How did you find the strength when that happened with your mother? I don't think I did at the time. No. I, d I didn't grieve for mum properly. No. There wasn't enough left. No. To grieve for mum. Mm. Mm. I, I didn't have any more tears to cry. They, they just... Ran out. Yeah, completely. Um, I still don't think I've properly grieved for mum. No. Too much, too soon yeah. to, 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 for anybody to deal with. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you're still here, you're doing remarkably well. And I know, obviously, one of the main reasons for you wanting to come on um, and talk so openly and honestly about this was because you wanted to kind of reach out to other people in similar yeah. situations. I want them to know that there is, there is an end, not an end, there is a way through, a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel maybe. Mm. They're not on their own. People need to know that, that they're not on their own. Mm. It's important. You do feel like there isn't anybody in this whole world that feels grief the same way that you do. Any, any grief of any kind, be it the grief of a dog, a cat, your, your dad, your mum, even your child, nobody in the whole world will feel it exactly the same way that you do. No. But 
they can they need to know that there are people that have been through this and can maybe help them talk through it and and I I didn't have any of that no but I I really would like to people to know that the you know to talk is the best have you had any therapy or no. any medication or anything to sort of help you yeah, get okay. you through the last three years medication yeah but therapy no um, my family have been my therapist. Said, so was you offered therapy, but just no. Um, to be quite honest, um, it it took another hospital visit two weeks ago for me to get referred. Okay. So that's the state we're at now. And I guess it's a roller coaster. It is. Yeah. That you're on. You know, you can't predict and say yes. You know, three years from now, a year from now, I'm going to be over this because I don't think you ever are. But there no. are ways to cope, and obviously well, you've got your other children, you've got your grandchildren, and you're so well thought of. And obviously you've got your husband Clem. I found my my, my way. I spent almost a, almost twelve months practically sat on my own in my bedroom. Yeah. But I created lots of things. I did lots of crafting and knitting jumpers for the kids and. I made handmade advent calendars for them for Christmas. Oh. And so you challenge, you channeled, yeah. you know, that grief into yeah. something good for your your grandchildren yeah. and try and you know get I watch some Christmas films endlessly because <laughs> oh. they take you away. Yeah, but it worked for me. It's, I'm not saying it, it's easy, and I'm not saying I'm over it, and I'm I'm, I'm not. Nobody ever will be, but. These things have helped me. Yeah. I'm by no stretch of the of the imagination over it. I never will, like I said, I never will be. But and I have good days and I have bad, bad days. Yeah. But the good days are outweighing the bad days more now yeah. than they were. I used to sleep a lot in the first six months of losing him. Mm. I didn't I wouldn't get up if I didn't have to. No. I still don't get dressed if I don't have to. So do you think that's important to give yourself that time? Yeah. To not put the the pressure, pressure on, myself. you know, and I suppose for your family as well, you know, if you are having a bad day, have that bad day. Yeah. Don't feel bad for it. Don't beat yourself up for it. Just go with it. Yeah. You know, and, and it have that. if you've got an understanding family as well. Yes. Understanding depression and grief or any any kind of mental illness. Mm. Understanding is the key because you can't you can't read a textbook and say, well, you're supposed to feel like this. Well, no, I'm not supposed to feel like that at all. And I don't feel like that. I feel like this. Because the human mind doesn't work like that. It doesn't. And it's waves of emotion, I suppose. Sometimes you feel anger. Sometimes you feel devastation I suppose and you have to go with those emotions yeah. and allow it to get through your system and mm. try and manage it the best way you can what so what are the most fondest memories that you've that, you know when Rob comes to mind oh god there's too many <laughs> no there's just too many he was a little shit and I, I'm sorry to say that on a podcast but he was but he was so funny. <laughs> lovable rogue? Very much There we go. Rogue. I like that. He was amazing. His sense of humour was phenomenal. And he, he only had to walk into the room and the whole room came to life. And I know people say that about people all the time. 
but it's the truth, you know, you could be sat there with long faces, Robert walking the room, oh yeah guys, and everyone's like, wow Rob, you know. Oh Rob's here, yeah. and just automatically the smiles. Yeah, and that, that's what it was. On people's faces. Yeah, that's how he was, and he's, Steph's a bit like that though, she, she, she walks into the room and everybody comes to life. Mm. That's so, a good quality yeah. to have and it's a nice memory to have it as well. Is, yeah. I'm sure you've got a lot to do with that as well. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Um, so do you think the way, because obviously you're, you're very open and honest about Rob and how life now goes on and, and since obviously you've lost him. Um, do you think that openness has impacted on how you've grieved? Yes, do I you do. think that rather than going within yourself? Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's important to be open and honest and to be able to tell people how you're feeling. Yeah. Whether these whether people listen is a different matter. But it's it's important for you as a as a person grieving or any other mental conditions, it's important to be able to talk about it, to be able to be open enough with yourself to be able to talk about it. Mm. You know, there are some things that I keep to myself that I think, oh, I'm not going to tell them that because they're going to think I'm completely bonkers. Or that you just don't want to share. Yeah. Some things yeah. you have to keep for yourself, don't you? You do, yeah. And it's getting the balance between the two, yeah. I guess. But, it's like sharing a box um, of chocolates, isn't it? You can give the nuts away. Oh, see, I like the praline ones with the nuts in. <laughs> They're my favourite. We'd get on sharing a box of chocolates. See, you know, you always come out with a positive at the end of, you know, something. And I think that's, that's wonderful. You know, th thanks for being open and honest about Rob. Um, and, you know, your children are obviously very important to you. Whether that's your own, whether that's your own, um, or your grandchildren and obviously your... your children's friends i think many of them call you mom oh yeah um but aside from family and having that role as a mother and people looking to you as a mother figure what and this is something i normally ask at the beginning of a podcast but i, I wanted to do it a little bit different um to kind of get the flow really and i feel like it would fit in well here what sort of what are the, are the top three things you're grateful for in life and why? The top three things I'm grateful for. My kids are number one. I'm grateful for every single one of them. And my grandkids. I'm but aside from the family. I'm grateful that I've had a healthy life. Mm. I'm grateful that I've been able to say what I think. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> That's an understatement, but it's it's a good thing because you get to to know your real friends. You do, yeah. And I think we all don't like saying no to things, and um, I think it's important to be able to say what you think, what you feel, without obviously upsetting people, but also looking after number one a little bit without being selfish. But, you know, we all get wrapped up and end up saying yes to things that we don't want to and not really speaking our minds and walking away from a situation where you've thought, you know what, you've just spoken to me like, oh, crap, I've took it and now I'm going away feeling rubbish about yeah, it yeah. and wished I'd have said this, this and this. Whereas I feel 
you would say exactly how you felt. Yes, sometimes it gets me into trouble. Sometimes, <laughs> but at least you know the people that are around you are the people that mean the most to you in, in life. I'm, I'm glad that I haven't actually surrounded myself with idiots. Yeah. Because I don't suffer fools very gladly. Um, I, I don't know how to explain what I mean by that. I don't mean I, I don't suffer stupid people because stupid people are stupid people. What no, I mean no, I know what, what you mean. I mean is, you know, you're not going to let somebody take you for a fall. Yeah, yeah. yeah or walk over you, yeah. basically. I don't, I don't like idiots. Just... And you know a lot of people with obviously being in the music industry, lots of people coming in, in and out of your life. Um, you know, so I suppose you've My got to... My not, not not having a huge, close friend um, community, if you know what I mean. Mm. I have lots and lots and lots, hundreds probably, of acquaintances. But I can't say I've got many close friends. Mm. And I like that because I don't have to deal with their shit as well as my own. But the people that are around you are the people, it. yeah, definitely. I think that's important. So leading on from that question, who and what has inspired you the most in your life, whether that be friend or family? Or my dad yeah. inspired me a lot in my life. My dad is, is the man who has always encouraged me to be me um, right from when I was a child. You know, he, he would always tell my mum off for telling me off, for doing something that was, <laughs> you know, perhaps not what she wanted me to do, but, yeah. you know, he'd, he'd say, oh, it just shows that she's got spirit or, you know, all that sort of stuff. Dad's always encouraged me, all of, all of his kids to be you know, themselves. Um, as far as my musical inspiration, but Freddie Mercury was my um, oh, I love Freddie. musical inspiration. I, I had my first Queen album when I was nine, and I learned every single lyric on Night of the Opera, and used to stand and belt it out, you know, in my bedroom. Um, he inspired me to sing basically because I had the same trouble with my teeth as Freddie Mercury. Oh, okay. I had four extra incisors, which meant my my. Mouth was too small for my teeth, so they stuck right out. Yeah. And I have a huge overbite, so that my the tone in my voice was pretty much like his. That you can hear the like the resonance in, resonance in the in the roof of the mouth, which I don't have now because they're all gone. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time I did, and so he I thought if if this man here with massive book teeth can do it, I can. Brilliant. So I did. And, uh, and the other person that inspired me the most in my life was my grandmother. Yes. Lily Finneymore. She was amazing. And what was it that you looked up to her for that, were made, that amazed you? She could do anything. I mean, and I, I mean, I know every grandchild thinks that their grandmother can do everything, but my nan actually could. She could strip and rebuild an engine. She used to work. Wow. You know, she, was, she worked in, in the war. She yes. Doing the, um, doing the munitions and stuff and and my granddad was um, an ARP warden and, and then she could cook, she could sew. They used to 
they used to get parachutes and make dresses out of the parachute silk and yeah. you know she'd have, she had a tent that she made out of a parachute during the war which we still used when I was a child. It's it amazing so isn't it the old generation and when we look at how easy and convenient things are to us now I think we're missing it a little bit. Yeah well that's not me you see. No because like, you've got really, a love for history and the I old way really, of living haven't you? Yeah I knit, I sew, I crochet, I cook you know, I can make my own clothes. I, I recycle on a stupidly high basis, high, you know, level. But not like you would, like normal people recycle. Putting plastic a, in a bin. Yeah, I'll take an old jumper, pull it to pieces and make something else out of it. That's recycling to me. And that's a massive thing because I am a big clothes person. Mm, well, me. Um, I absolutely, that, that's my thing. Other than music, I love my clothes. And I watched a programme about the environment and the impact that clothes, I was gobsmacked and felt incredibly guilty. I did because of all the cotton trees draining the seas and oh man, I felt, I felt. When they're dying, the, the clothes and the, the pollution. And the yeah, I had, honestly, I had no idea. I was that oblivious and maybe a little bit ignorant to it, but I watched that program and I thought, right, I'm gonna change my ways. I'm massively into vintage anyway. Um, and I'd already bought vintage, but you know, I would go to Topshop and all the high street shops and buy them. I don't now, I go on eBay and I buy used. I go to the charity shops. All the charity shops. <laughs> Absolutely love the charity shops. Um, so I think, I think, yeah. It's... I can't remember the last time I went clothes shopping for myself. Like, I don't usually. I have a friend who actually donates all her. Um, well, even even for my daughter, you know, I'll I'll go I'll go to eBay or I'll go to charity shops. You know, obviously school uniforms and things yeah, like that. Different. But you know, even some of those I'll try and utilise. But I think it's important, um, and I like that way of of you living and recycling. It's a good and ethos. It is a good ethos. It's a very good ethos. So obviously, you've mentioned philosophy quite a few times um, because you have such a, a love for it. What's your life philosophy? My life philosophy, I suppose, is be yourself. Live the way you want to without hurting others and treat people the way you would like to be treated. You don't, there is nobody on the face of this planet any better than me, but by the same token, I'm no better than anybody else either. And I think if everybody lived by that way of thinking, mm the world would be a much kinder place. Wouldn't it just, if only. Yeah, it really would. Yeah, that, that would be my one of my wishes, actually. There's lots of wishes, but I think, and it does sound really cliche and old hat and all the rest of it, but there's so much anger in this world, but there's so much beauty and there's so many good people and you just think, oh, why can't everybody be just, you know? And why are all the, I know it's, this is gonna sound pretty horrible, but why are all the, the rich people, the assholes, really, basically, if you know what I mean. It's you know true, I mean? because you do get some people that have got money, but you'd never know it, mm. because they're down to earth That's or right. whatever, but then you do get the people that have got a bit of money, but pretend they've got more than what they have, That's and they're right. assholes. And that's just life, isn't it? But mm. I just think with the whole um, politics, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'll count my chickens. I'm so glad I live in England mm. because without the health services, I'd be stumped for one. No, I don't. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for that.
but I just think that we could be doing, the whole world could be doing a lot better if everybody well, adapted yeah. that ethos of being a bit more kinder, opening your eyes, you know, treat people as you would expect to be treated. Um, you know, I think that's a very, very, very good philosophy. Well, I had a, a little incident yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, a little incident. No, nothing like <laughs> Coming back from Worcester, and um, it was raining, and we came down Ruffield Drive, and there was an old gentleman in the middle of the road by his car. Oh, gosh. And his car was on a skew in the road, and I said to my daughter, Oh, God, do you think he's okay? I said, uh, I've got to go back. She was going, Oh, don't, Mum, there's people there already. Somebody's just pulled up. I said, I can't leave him. Bab, he's an old man. Um, so I went round the island and came back up behind him. Turned out he was an 80-year-old gentleman who'd got his 20-year-old dog in the car. The clutch had blown on his car and he'd skidded out of control and he was sort of across the carriageway. Well, you know how fast they come off that McDonald's island and go up Ruffield Drive to um, Headless Cross? They were just skirting round him and going into the other... And nobody was stopping, mm. apart from these three guys in a tree surgeon van. They stopped and helped us. Got his car off the road. Turned out that this poor gentleman lost his, his wife two and a half years ago. He was a little confused. Um, but he, 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 he couldn't find his son's phone number or anything. And then when he did finally find his son's phone number, I managed to get hold of his son. And then he sort of came out of his shock a bit and he said, I can't believe you stopped. And, oh. and you sat here waiting with me, because his son was in Bidford, and he said, I'll be there 20 minutes. He said, and you sat here waiting with me. He said, I can't believe you've done that. He said, you know, people don't do that anymore. People don't want help. And that's because of the way society has gone. You know, he, he could have been a setup. I could have stopped and been hurt. This is it. You just don't know in this day and age, but do you? But that didn't even click in the back of my head. It wouldn't have mine. But, but when you watch some of these programmes, it is a setup, isn't it? And then they, you know, yeah. do whatever they've got to do because it's it's a it's a harsh world, isn't it? So there's, you know, I think pay it forward is is another good philosophy to have. You know, if you do a good deed, it'll come back. It does. It does. It definitely does. And positive thinking. Think lucky and you'll be lucky. That's what my nan used to say. She was Irish and she was wonderful. The look of the Irish. <laughs> and it really is. It's true. I do think if you do good deeds, good deeds will come back on you. But it's not always just to do that. I think it's just good to, you know, with the whole religion and politics and different people's views and beliefs, I respect anybody for what they believe in. But for me personally, I just think I like to just try and be a good person. Mm. If I can wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night with a clear conscience, knowing that I've done good and the best that I can and be the best person that I can and not judge people, mm. then I'm okay with that. And I think... I think just, just to be able to go to, you know, go to bed at night and know that you haven't hurt anybody. Yeah. And, you know, not, not even to have, have to had to have done good that day to anybody else, just... Be you, you know, and, and, and you know when people like you. You know, people People are different around you if they don't like you, aren't they? Yeah, they're, you know. And if, you, if you've got, you've got people around you that are happy with you, you've made it. And that's what I try and pass on to my, my, to my kids, you know. 
not everybody's going to like you and that's okay. The people that do like you will the people that will figure in your life and that's what's important. If you're a good person, there's an old saying, isn't there? You, you can't please all the people all the time. This is true. This is true. Is there anything else that you want to add or talk about? No, I just want to say thanks for uh, inviting, well, inviting me and, and letting me ramble. You haven't rambled. You've talked <laughs> amazing sense and I'm, you know, sure that people listening will think, you know. I just um, want people to know that, there, you know, there are other people out there that are struggling still and like you know that they're there you know that we need some kind of network where we can get people together to, to talk properly and not something that's organized by the nhs we could probably do with some sort of volunteer organization yeah in the community is. definitely yeah, there's yeah. so many things that can happen that's what i hope you know by talking to people with their life stories of things that have happened i hope that other people listening think oh you know yeah, and that we inspire people yeah. To, to talk and know that it's okay to have these feelings and that things will be okay. So thank you very much for sharing um, your story with us. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful um, and obviously giving us insights into finding ways to cope with bereavement. And I wish you all the happiness in thank the you. world because you deserve it. Um, you're a good egg. So, um, as a bonus um, to the end of this podcast, something I've not done before, um, we've brought your husband, Clem, on for just a short time to talk about um, his love for music and how his teachings have helped people come through mental health issues, you know, found confidence um, and things like that. So, Clem, welcome to the Don't Look Down podcast. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> thank you for coming on alongside your wife and your best friend Good. thank you very much um, I'm sure you'll tell me more about this but there's so many benefits to music it's a massive part of my life I know I've said it a million times over but it really is and it definitely soothes us all um, it's been known to lower blood pressure and heart rate and is now used in many situations as part of therapy um, so, firstly, can you tell me how you got into music and what made you decide to teach okay. for a living? I got into music by accident. It was, was at school doing French, hated French, mm -hmm. never any good at it. And a friend of mine said that he was going for a guitar lesson and he wasn't doing French today. Um, so I found out that I could go and do it too. So my French teacher said, you carry on, you're absolutely rubbish at French. <laughs> as long as you can come back in uh, after half a term and play a song that I would recognise. So I went away and learned Paranoid by Black Sabbath, which was his favourite band. One of my favourite songs. <laughs> so I went back and played it to him and he said, carry on. So um, you said you just played it. Do, so did you find that from that lesson forward that you had something natural, it was like a gift you could play easily? No. Okay. I had to work really hard and it was, um, I was probably, in the, in the 16 kids who were taking lessons at school, I was probably the worst one there. Really? Yeah. I'd never know that because you are amazing. I, I just became obsessed with it 
and just practiced and practiced. I listened to loads of different music, uh, loads of different rock music, rock music mainly, Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath, yeah. um, Led Zeppelin. And I just went from there really. So that was your biggest influence from a young age, yes. Black Sabbath, Oz yeah. would you say they're your favourite band? Um, back as a child, as a teenager, yeah. So you knew that you was going to be into that kind of music yeah. and that was your, that was the path yeah. that you was going to go down. Yeah. And obviously you worked hard to play. And Extremely. So you had to work hard. Oh, was there a point where it just clicked? Um, I don't know. I worked probably three to four hours a day. Wow, okay. Even when I went to college. Your um, fingers must have bled. No, no, no. Just lots of work and, <laughs> and studied music theory as well. That was part of it. Oh, right, okay. So you took it quite seriously yeah, from yeah. that side of it as well. Yeah, and I studied classical music and jazz as well as rock. And so a lot of it was, um, wasn't just playing, mm -hmm. it was the th theoretical side, which was uh, really good. Um, one person of patterns who uh, mm. found that quite therapeutic. Maybe. Yeah. It was very interesting. Bores a lot of people. But... No, no, not at all. I'm sure many musicians will relate to that. So, who's your biggest musical influence and why? Um, probably Frank Zappa. Um, Frank Zappa was... He wasn't afraid to create the music how he wanted it to sound. He didn't sound like anybody else. Obviously he had influences. And he wasn't afraid what to say in his songs. Mm. Um, so for people that don't know Frank, yeah. what's his style of music and what does he play? And okay, tell us about him. His style of music is very difficult to explain. Okay. And it's not pigeonholed in any way. Mm. But some people would call it jazz. Some people would call it progressive rock. Some people would call it experimental, avant-garde. Um, so it's a bit of a mixture of everything, would you say? Yeah. And that's why he appeals to you? Yeah, and he definitely wasn't a chart hit. Didn't have any chart hits at all. But he released, I think it was 120 albums in his lifetime, and mm. that's still releasing albums now, 20, 20 odd years after he died. Wow. So that's, and, 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 and why is it that he has sort of grasped you and inspired you? Um, I think it was his advanced musicianship and his experimentation and a lot of people don't find, find any feeling in his music. I don't know, I do. I don't really do. You connect with it, yeah. would you say? Yeah. Okay. So, talking on from sort of connecting and with music and having that association with it, we know that music has the power to heal. Um, have you seen this firsthand while you've been teaching at all? Because obviously you've gone on to teach and this is your life now, this is your livelihood. Yeah, I've seen it quite a lot actually. Mm. Um, at one time I was teaching a lot of autistic kids. Okay, privately? Uh, in, in a school. Oh, okay. Um, there was an autistic uh, section yeah. in the school. And they used to come along um, some of them wouldn't pick it up very well, some of, some of them are absolutely amazing, they picked it up extremely quick. But they all found it relaxing and they, they created hobbies out of it. Um, 
Did you just see a different side to them when they lost themselves and was yeah. able to connect and play? Yeah, and I would talk to the parents and they would say that, it, that they would see the difference in them mm. like, while they were playing. And mm. it, it brought some concentration into something. Um, I taught one person who was a uh, severe P PTSD. Yeah. He, he was an ex-soldier. Oh, right, okay. Um, he suffered some real trauma. And he lost confidence in everything. Mm. Um, within about six months' time, he was playing open mics. He was singing and playing in front of people. Which wow. He was finding it hard to talk to people before and um, that was absolutely amazing to see that. And it must have been rewarding for you yeah, to know yeah, that you really helped with that because it's it's not just about losing yourself in the music, it's about you know helping other people and when you can pass that on to somebody else, that must feel amazing. It was, it is, it is. And you see the progression as well, especially mm. from young kids. Yeah, it just intrigues me, the whole, you know, I've said it before, but I can be having such a bad day and a song will come on and it will just yeah. take me back to a memory or, you know, whether that be sad, whether that be one of the best songs where it really made me feel happy, but it's just that, I don't know, it's indescribable, but it, it just does something and it can just completely change the way that you're thinking that day. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I always say, um, if you play an instrument, if you're angry, get on that instrument and be aggressive on the instrument. You can create aggressive music or mm. play aggressive music. Yeah. Um, whether it's classical or thrash metal, whatever you're doing. Um, or if, you, if you're feeling sad, you can pick it up and you can cheer yourself up by playing music. It's an outlet, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's a way to channel whatever's going on inside of you. That's it, yeah. And make something positive out of it and beautiful as well. Yeah. Um, for so many different reasons. Do you think it's hard to teach somebody that does find it difficult? Um, or have you ways and strategies of helping people that don't pick things up as easily? I do, yeah. Um, I have come across people who have found it really difficult to learn. Yeah. Um, what I usually do is take them right back to strip it all back to real basics. Um, teaching guitar is a bit more difficult. Learning guitar is a little bit more difficult than, say, a keyboard or a piano. Yeah. Because the notes are in front of you on a piano or a keyboard. Whereas guitar, you've got to train your fingers and you have to be very patient. So when I'm teaching somebody who is finding it difficult, I have to slow everything right down. Take them, teach them simple melodies, rather than teaching them the standard way. Yeah, the rather than maybe teaching them, oh, this is A chord, the, the, the simple chords. Yeah. Do you think maybe giving them um, a piece of music that they like and getting them to play a few chords, they... Sometimes. Does that work? It does, yeah. 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 And then also just giving them, rather than holding chords down, because that's what most people find difficult. Yes. Um, just giving them simple tunes, perhaps on one or two strings. Um, so that something, so they can see yeah. something has been played. Yeah, something, they're making some progression. Yeah. Um, yeah, so sometimes people just aren't suited to that instrument. As well, that, that's another thing. Yeah, so you have to be honest. Yeah, I, yeah, you do. But you had to work hard, so do you ever sort of say, look, this didn't come easy to me, I might be able to play easily now, but... All the time. Yeah. Um, I, I still can't play everything. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, 
but what's your favorite style to play um, i know you're into obviously metal but you have got a very varied musical oh, taste i don't think i've got a favorite really. you haven't no it's i could be playing classical or flamenco one day then oh, i love flamenco guitar next day i could be playing country music then i could be playing some really heavy stuff um, <laughs> Yeah, that change. Yeah, punk. That's what it was. Yes, that's at the moment, isn't it? Um, so obviously, with your teachings and sort of passing on your knowledge and helping other people, how do you think that music has impacted your own well-being? With obviously, you know, we've talked to Sam earlier about her struggles. You've obviously had your own. Yeah. You've had to be a rock to Sam, and I'm sure there's been times when you've had your own things going on. Yeah, um, I've always used my music. I'll, I'll write, write music. Well, sometimes I just sit and play and improvise. And mm. just, I might not do anything with it. I just play it once and never play it again and completely forget I'm doing it. So music has helped in, in myself. It still does. I, I still play every day and still write every day. Um, some people find it a bit strange because when I release music, it's all different. Um, one minute I could be playing a, a classical piece and it can, again it could be some heavy metal and the next thing it could be some new age sounding electronic stuff where I don't even pick up a guitar um, so yeah and all of that comes from emotion when I do that stuff it's how I feel at that particular time yeah um, so whatever emotion you've got that day it comes out in whatever way if you pick up a guitar or yeah. go into the studio yeah Okay, so what what are you just out of interest? What are you um what are you doing at the moment? Where are you at the moment in terms of new stuff? Um, I've just released four new tracks. Um, one of them's actually twenty years old. But I've only just got around to record it. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and they're actually the, the other pieces. The the three other pieces that I've released are pieces I've written over the last twelve months and. Some of, it, some of it reflects um, Sam, actually, what Sam's gone through over the last few years. So it's um, quite a deep one. Uh, yes. Uh, and it's not what most people would expect from me to do, actually. It's very different. But I suppose that's with, I mean, and obviously you know quite a lot of people in the music industry. You've played with famous people, yeah. you know, local people. Um, and you often find that, you know, when an artist or a band release their first album, it's always the best. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think it's because it's raw and it's usually not, not overproduced by a big company. There's not loads of money going into it. Yeah. And it's usually, there's usually more feeling than the first Because I certainly connect to the first, it always seems to be the first album for me. Yeah. And when they haven't made the big time, Yeah. you know. Um, Cheryl Crow is a massive, massive influence yeah. um, of mine. I got into her when I was a real young teenager and she's so, so talented. Um, I just connect in a way that I don't connect with any other music and I love, you know, all the greats to Led Zeppelin, to, to Pink Floyd, to Madonna, to Michael Jackson, to Bob Marley, to the Kings of Leon, the Charlatans, Oasis, but there's something about Cheryl Crow that I suppose with um, Frank, Frank Zappa, yeah. 
you know, there's always there's always somebody, and I do find that the first album always sort of grasps you the most, and I think it it's right it's because you connect with it because it's more raw. Yeah, uh, it was funny actually with Frank Zappa. I found um, some albums that I actually didn't like, and the early the first one I really didn't like. Oh really? <laughs> it was um, only later on, his later stuff from the seventies onwards. But how many albums did you say he'd released? Um, I think it was about 120 in his lifetime. Yeah. And he died in about 96. And they're still releasing albums now from his archive. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He, he was in his 50s when he died. So, a lot of work there. A lot, a lot. So other than guitar, do you play anything else? Um, I play bass. Um, I play all types of guitar. Um, I dabble with keyboards. Uh, mm. It really is dabbing. Okay. Um, but no, no, nothing else really. Mandolin, bit of banjo. So has there been anybody that's that kind of stood out that you've taught, of maybe it was the soldier, or has there been anybody else, or is there anybody at the moment that you're sort of teaching um, music to that you feel really proud of? I've had quite a few of them, actually. Um, some of them have gone on to be quite successful in their playing and in the music industry. Yeah. Um, but... I'm proud of the other kids, mainly kids I've taught over the years, who have just gone out there and got out of situations just from playing. Um, I had one lad I was teaching who was in care. Um, yeah. And after the school paid for his lessons, and after the school stopped paying for his lessons, um, I carried on teaching for free because I just had a connection with the lad. Yeah. And he was so keen. Um, I actually recorded a song with him a few weeks ago. Oh. Yeah, cool. so, so, see, it's it's moments and, and times like that, isn't it, that make you, you know, realise. And when you teach for free, I think that, you know, and it's helping somebody. I don't think yeah. you can get any better enjoyment out of that. So what, what advice would you sort of give to people and parents listening for their children that are sort of, you know, maybe trying to go down the wrong path in the wrong group? might be having a confidence issue or a mental health issue or you know what advice would you give to them if you're thinking if they're thinking of getting their children into school where can they go where could they find you or people like you um a lot of the time in if if they i think if a kid is so interested in music um whether they're going through a bad time or a good time you know, but i think it's worth pursuing just to see if they um, they would take it up. Mm. I have seen kids in some very bad situations who have been getting into trouble a lot. Um, I haven't worked with uh, the one I'm thinking of in particular, but a friend of mine did, who, and the kid was into rap music. Yeah. And um, he ended up learning how to create his own music using a computer and rapping. And he's done quite well for himself, actually. He's, get, he's out there playing all the time. Um, Brilliant. But that was only because um, somebody spotted him and knew he had a he, He'd got something. Yeah. They saw the, saw the potential. But if any parents see any, you know, if their kids, if they get into the wrong places and they are interested in music, it's worth just doing a search on Google. Sometimes you can end up with the, the wrong tutor, just somebody you don't get on with. So yeah, so that's you it. You've got to make a connection with the person as yeah. well, haven't you? So you can always move on to another one. Um, I'm pretty sure most music tutors are offended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it's always well uh, looking 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 music shops. 
Um, there's all there's directories out there. Mm. And the um, schools. Yeah, in the schools. Um, so obviously you, you, you got involved with the schools. How did that come about? Um, actually by accident. It was uh, one of my old students. Um, I was taught by... Uh, sorry, I wasn't taught by him. <laughs> That'd be interesting. <laughs> one of my old students, um, he felt uncomfortable about being taught at school. So, this, of course, I went to the school, I was teaching there anyway, um, te only teaching him. They asked me if it was okay if he'd come to my house. Obviously, this is quite a few years ago. It wouldn't, yeah. It wouldn't happen these days. No. But I had quite a lot of trust with the school. Um, so I ended up teaching him from home and going into the school, started teaching another student. Then I started helping out with the performance side of the exams, GCSEs and A-levels. I went from there, really. Fantastic. Like, Working around the different schools. And, Brilliant. Um, I suppose you're just so well-known now as well. Yeah. But, that yeah. People, you get referrals and that's, that's again, amazing, isn't it? That's it, yeah. That's Brilliant. Good. So lastly, I'd love to hear your take on what, the benefits of playing or even listening to music are? Okay. Um, I would say playing music, it's a stress relief. Um, if you go out and play live, you can go to open mic nights. Um, and it's a great way of socialising, meeting up with other people. Um, and it's a great way of confidence building actually getting up and playing in front of people is something else that it takes a lot to get up on a stage. It um, does. Yeah. Um, I know some very confident people but when it comes around to going onto a stage, it's another thing. Oh, completely. You know, um, I can get up and start on stage and play my guitar, no problem at all. As soon as, as, soon as I have to speak, it's really different. <laughs> That's really it, different. isn't it? Yeah. Um, do you feel like do you feel like you can hide behind your guitar a little bit, but when it comes to like singing or speaking, it's like all eyes are on you. Yeah. Definitely. But it's not, is it? It's exactly the same yeah, because, is. you know, when I watch a band, I watch the guitarist. Yeah. The guitarist is like one of the main things. Oh no, you've got the front man and everything. But if you look at Liam and Noel Gallagher, you know, you look at Noel as much as you would look at Liam. I love Liam, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I'm a guitarist. Exactly. <laughs> a tuck from Sam there. But no, I think that's brilliant, you know. Um, and I think that if people can get into music, you know, there's so many different forms um, and things out there, not just music, but, you know, different hobbies. I, I did um, a podcast with my um, Kung Fu instructor about martial arts. Obviously, that's something else that you're into as well. Um, and have done very well in and you know but I do think that sometimes it's not always about um, you know doing it just listening to music as well can be oh, definitely. I, I um, spent some time in um, the children's hospital and um, different sort of neonatal wards and I could hear classical music playing I thought what's all that about you know, Beethoven, Mozart, all, all that. And this baby was born prematurely. And the only way that this baby would sleep is if classical music was, was played. And literally, I was that intrigued. I, I went and spoke to the nurse. I was like, I'm really amazed by this. And they said, oh, 
when we stopped the music and I stopped it, he started to cry and they put it back on and he stopped. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. I've got a very similar story. Oh, go on then. When Connor was a baby, um, it was, he, he clung to Sam and he would come to me, but he just screamed all the time. We, we had to sleep separately. It was an absolute nightmare for about, oh God. about three months, four months. Um, anyway, I walked into the kitchen. I was I, I holding him, trying to calm him down. And one particular one night, um, I thought, let's put some music on. I'll just press play on a tape player back then. Um, Cassettes. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> and, um, the music started playing and it just went quiet. And the music was actually from 1937. And it was Robert Johnson playing guitar and singing. Wow. Um, famous for the Crossroads Blues song. And I thought, is this really working? Anyway, the, the song stopped and he started crying again. The next song came on, he went quiet. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. So from a, a newborn baby, there is, and, and it's the same, you know, obviously with my daughter Pearl, you know, she spent the first, sort of two months of her life in hospitals. So when she came home, she was used to noise yeah. of, a, of hospital wards. So coming home in the still of the night, you've ju it was just complete silence. So we had to get used to her and she had to get used to us and the silence. And you know, you, we, you know, we soon got into a routine, but it was Eva Cassidy. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. It was the whole album. <laughs> Good choice, but not on repeat. <laughs> no, I don't. I just had it and I thought something therapeutic, something calm. And I instantly went to music and I think we do it without realising, don't we? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. it's just and people play music in, in elderly homes and I think it's important. You know, people come in and play. Yeah. It just gives people something, doesn't it? It's that release. It releases the, the serotonin, the natural endorphins in your brain without even realising it. And we take it for granted. Yeah. Used to help treat uh, Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, very successfully as well. Has it? Yeah. What? What? Can you elaborate any more on that? Um, it's a, just a short documentary I watched uh, about a year ago, and they've been going around to um, some of these homes and playing, putting headphones on some of the patients. Yeah. And it's music, um, just from their era, that they would have known when they were young, and they're sat there tapping their foot and singing along where some of these people can't even communicate with people. Mm. And it's, it's absolutely amazing when you see the results. Music is the power. Yeah. And Richard Ashcroft said that. Yeah, he did, yeah. That's another person that I like. Um, um, amongst so many. Um, and I don't just pigeonhole myself to one type of music either. No, I don't. You know, I've got my favourites and the go-to albums, if you like. But, um, yeah, it's so varied. And I think that's... that that. You know, we're lucky. Yeah. We're very lucky, um, especially you know when things like the, um, the the you know what happened in Manchester, and then they put on that um, you know open air concert where lots of musicians played, and it's like you know love and music is more powerful than any anything else really, and I think that's where I'm going to end it really. If you got anything else you'd like to add on it? Um, no. <laughs> so um, don't, something that's new and. I wanted to um, share with people, we came up with this idea together was um, 
obviously Sam sings, you play guitar, yeah. and we're going to end the show with um, a song that you've that you've both recorded. Um, just tell us a little bit about what that means to you, and we can finish the show on that. Um, well, the song is um, it's an old song, um, and to me, it symbolises getting over something or getting round something. It's called the water is wide, um, and she's asking for a boat to get her across it. And for me, that's symbolising getting over something. Mm. You know, overcoming things. Overcoming obstacles um, in anything really. Uh, the water's wide, you need a boat to get over it, you've got to find your boat. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for coming on. Thank it's been an absolute... Thank you very much. Thank you, and I wish you both the best.